Jesus, so that we can be certain about who Jesus is, about what we've heard. That's why Luke is writing this. That's what he says. He says, so that we can be certain about who Jesus is. That feels like something that we really need at the moment, isn't it? Some certainty. So in this search for certainty, certainty about who Jesus is and what he's done, well, Luke splits his account in two. Oh, and just like that, my clicker stopped working. Try again. What do we think, Rob? <laughs> might not be my clicker. It might be the computer. Oh, gone too far. All right, great. It's okay. Thank goodness. Right, so yeah, Luke splits his gospel into two sections. Now, the first section, uh, well, this is where we see Jesus' identity worked out. Right from the beginning, it's answering that question of who Jesus is. So we've got the, the birth narrative. Back in chapter 1, Mary is to call the child Jesus. Why? Because he's going to be the one who is that rescuing king, God's promised king. At the baptism in Luke chapter 3, we hear God speaking from heaven, saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And then throughout those early chapters, we get a series of, of miracles and teaching from Jesus, all pointing to who he was, the rescuing king, the Messiah. And all this comes to a head in Luke chapter 9. So do grab uh, your Bibles. There should be one near you on your pew. And do uh, please turn to Luke chapter 9. You want page uh, 1039, 10.39 for Luke chapter 9. And what we see in this chapter, well, this is a really important chapter because it all comes to a head here where Luke ends his first section and ends it by making sure that there is absolutely no way that we can miss who Jesus is. Have a look at verse 20. We hear from Jesus' followers as they see who Jesus really is. Peter says he's the Messiah, God's promised rescuer. And then later in verse 35, we hear again from God speaking from heaven. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Which means as we come to the end of this first section, well, Jesus' identity is crystal clear, isn't it? He's the Messiah. He's God's son, sent to be our rescuer. And we can be certain that he is our Messiah. But as Luke moves from this first section into the second, well, we're left with this question, the question of how. How will this Messiah rescue us? How will Jesus save us? Well, it's as we move from this first section that Jesus predicts what would go on to take place. Jesus tells his disciples of the cross that was to come. Have a look at, at down at verse 21. Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus here is predicting his death, explaining to his disciples that he would be rejected and killed but would rise again. This then is how Jesus would fulfill his role as Messiah. This is how he saves. It's through the cross. And with that in mind, well, Luke then moves to his second section of this gospel. 
which is spent on the road to the cross. And we're going to have our reading now from Luke 9. Thanks, sir. So this uh, reading is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62, and that's on page 1040. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Myself? Great. Well, in that first verse of our passage, back in verse 51, we hear these words. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus is now on the road to Jerusalem. I think this is actually really appropriate for what we're looking at, that we are looking at this passage. As we meet together this evening on the first Sunday of Lent, which is all about looking ahead to Good Friday, preparing our hearts to remember Jesus' death, or that we're in sync with Jesus and his followers as they too begin to prepare for that Good Friday, for the cross as they travel on the road to Jerusalem. And this is a big deal. After all his, after all his journeys, all his teaching, his miracles, Jesus is now setting off for Jerusalem. This is it. This is the road to the cross. And over the next uh, 10 chapters, we see Jesus on this journey with reference after reference of Jesus heading to Jerusalem. And we might think, and we might be thinking, well, we've got the geography of Jesus sorted from heaven to earth, from when he's born on earth to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem, well, then we would see the gospel spread. We see that in Acts, don't we, in Luke part two, the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. That's the the movement of Jesus' story. But actually, that's not quite what this passage says, is it? Have Have another look down at that verse. Yes, we are told that Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. That's where he's going but that's not his final destination. Now we're told that the time was approaching for him to be taken up to heaven. Heaven, glory, to be with the Father. And that's where Luke's gospel will end in chapter 24. That's where we're headed over these next couple of months in our evening services. We're heading for heaven. And yes, we do end up in Jerusalem, but we'll see in the closing chapter of Luke's account that Jesus is is taken up. 
that he ascends into glory, into heaven. That's where he is headed. Jesus' destination is glory with God. It's, if you like, uh, that he's homeward bound. But what's the route there? Well, it's via Jerusalem. And we've already seen, haven't we, that Jerusalem isn't just a word, it isn't just a, a place. Rather, it's packed with everything that Jesus would undergo. The suffering, the rejection, the cross. For Jesus... Well, for Jesus, though, the road to glory, well, it didn't have to go via Jerusalem. He could have been with his father just like that. That's not why he came. Remember the the first part of Luke that we got on the screen behind us? Jesus is the Messiah, the promised rescuer. And he comes to rescue us from everything that we've done wrong, to save us from the, the sinful brokenness of this world but also to offer us hope of heaven. Jesus is homeward bound for heaven, and he wants us to join him, to know the wonder and joy of restored relationship with God. That's why we're told Jesus resolutely sets out to Jerusalem, because he's going to the cross, the means by which we could be given that hope of heaven. I think this is just mind-blowing, knowing what lay ahead, knowing exactly what he would have to go through, knowing that he could escape the suffering at any moment, but he still chose to go down that road, closer to Jerusalem. Every step was for you. It was for you. It was for you. What a Messiah, what a Savior we have. I think what comes next is actually both, I guess, surprising, but also it perfectly captures everything we've just been thinking about. As he sets off for Jerusalem, Jesus sends messengers ahead of him to prepare the people in the towns and villages. Jesus is coming. But in verse 53, we hear of this Samaritan village. The people there hear that Jesus is on his way, but they're not interested. They don't welcome him. In fact, they reject him and send him on his way. The Son of God, miracle maker, promised Messiah. Well, they tell him to jog on. The disciples are furious. They want to get all Old Testament on these Samaritans and call down fire from heaven to destroy this village. It's a strong reaction, isn't it? I don't know if uh, James and John, the two disciples in question, were in the habit of calling down fireballs often, I don't know, but they seem pretty confident in themselves, don't they? They're looking to channel their inner Elijah and unleash divine retribution on this snub. But Jesus rebukes them. He tells them off. Why? Because they've completely missed it. Everything he's just explained to them, they've not understood. Jesus has just said, well, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. And just a moment later, as he set off for Jerusalem, this village rejects him, wants nothing to do with him. So this shouldn't have been a surprise. This wasn't the plan going wrong and the disciples having to step in to help poor Jesus out. No, this was the plan. Jesus came to be rejected to be scorned and suffer. Some 750 years before Jesus was on the scene, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the coming Messiah. And he says, 
Uh, this, he says this in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Not five minutes into the journey to Jerusalem, and Jesus is facing rejection. But it's exactly for those kinds of people that Jesus came. If we carry on reading in Isaiah, this is what we hear. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is what the Messiah does. He doesn't come bringing the fire of condemnation. No, Jesus came to bear our suffering, our pain, to take our punishment, even of those who have rejected him, especially those who have rejected him. That's the the love of the Messiah, a love for those who reject him, a love that goes as far as the cross. I think this small episode with this random Samaritan village, well, it sets a trend for what we see over the coming chapters, all the way to that ultimate rejection, to the cross. Can you see the, the picture that Luke is painting for us? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, glory-bound, homing in on heaven. But he is also the suffering Savior, who would face rejection every step along the road to the cross. That is who Jesus is. And here's the, the twist of the knife for us this evening. If we're followers of Jesus, well, then we are called to follow him on that same costly road. Becoming a Christian is joining Jesus in his journey. We're glory-bound, homing in on heaven wonderfully, but we're traveling along the road that he traveled on, the road marked with suffering. And so we come back to that opening question. There it is. What time is it? What time is it? Well, here Luke is revealing the reality of our spiritual time zone, if you like. We're saved by the cross that is behind us. We look back to what Jesus has done for us with the hope of heaven ahead. That is our certain hope. But we're not there yet. And so we're called to follow Jesus in this life along this costly road. That's the time that we're now in. And it's so important to recognize that so that we're ready to count the cost, the cost of following Jesus in the here and now. But if this is all feeling a little bit uh, abstract for us this evening, well, I would like us to get, to get real, to get practical, and maybe, if you're willing, to get a bit personal as well as we think about the cost of following Jesus. I think it would be really helpful just to discuss this uh, with those around us, as we often do here in the evening services, and just be thinking about this question that's on the screen. What is uh, the hardest thing about being a Christian? What's the hardest thing about being a Christian? I'm sure there's all sorts of things that we might share, but just thinking about counting the costs as we follow Jesus. Um, Twos, threes, fours, with those sitting around us, let's discuss for a few minutes that question. 
if, the, if you're happy to, to share, um, what, what are some of the things that we find hardest about being uh, a Christian? I won't go around with a microphone. I think we're a few enough in number just to, to shout it out. But yeah, what's the hardest thing, do we think? Yeah, so friction with, with friends and family who aren't, who aren't Christians. Yeah, I think that's definitely a big one, isn't it? And really, really feels quite costly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, any other groups, things that feel hard about being a Christian? Loving our neighbor as ourselves. Yeah, thank you, Terry. Yeah, that's costly, isn't it? To really love someone, whether that's sacrificial or just hard to do. Yeah, thank you, Terry. Anything else hard, hard about being a Christian? Yeah, having, having Christians in the same stage of life as we are, having that, that peer group around us to encourage us, to, to keep us going, absolutely, that can be really hard. Well, really helpful to hear these things. Thank you so much for sharing them together because being a Christian is costly. We need to be real about that this evening. And that's what Luke, back in our passage, is so helpfully showing us. He shows us that journeying with Jesus will mean counting the cost. And Luke, well, he shows us not one, but three individuals who look to be prime candidates for would-be followers of Jesus. But it turns out that for each of them, the cost would be too high. And from these, these brief encounters that we get in these verses, we see that particularly the areas of comfort and family are where we might find it hardest to follow Jesus, to bear the cost of journeying with him. So firstly, let's, uh, let's zoom in on comfort briefly together. Um, verse 57, have a look down at that. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And I think he promised too much too soon. He didn't really know what he was saying, what he was committing to. Perhaps this man had, had failed to recognize what time it was. Perhaps he had his eyes set on glory the glory that was Jesus's, and he was going to go with him for that. But he failed to recognize the road of suffering that lay before then. I'll follow you, Lord, in the, in the good times, the, for the good food, the, the five-star inclusive experience. But Jesus replies, verse 58, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man, Jesus himself, has no place to lay his head. Don't expect luxury, Jesus says. Don't expect comfort. Jesus has just been rejected, refused a place to stay in this Samaritan village. And so very literally, Jesus says, there's no place for me to lay my head. This man expected Beverly Hills. Jesus says, no, the reality is more like Bear Grylls. So what do you expect as a Christian? One of the fastest growing uh, faith movements in the world at the moment is the health and wealth movement, the, the prosperity gospel. Huge uh, mega churches projected onto satellite TV channels across the world, but it's a, it's a complete distortion. People are told that if you really trust Jesus, well, you'll have good, perfect health. If you love God enough, give enough, well, then God will give to you abundantly. Great wealth be, will be yours. Just name it and claim it. But I hope we know this evening that those promises are not made by God. 
He does promise to be with us, to love us, to use everything for our good and his glory, but he doesn't promise us health and wealth in this life. Or more subtly, we might hear ourselves saying, oh, I'm sure God will have something better for you. I think, I think the ins- in, uh, insinuation of that is that because of the years that we've perhaps spent coming to church, or by the simple virtue that we're a Christian, well, God will provide us with a, a better house, a better job, a better car. Now, those are all good things. Please don't mishear me. It's good to enjoy the good things that God has given us. In home groups, a lot of us will be looking at that book at the moment, won't we? The Generosity Project, where we're thinking about all that God in his generosity has given for us to enjoy. But I think we can so easily slip into creating for ourselves a a cocoon of comfort. The newer car, the comfier sofa, the bigger house. Good things, good things. But those are the things that if if we're hoping for, living for, working towards... Well, those are the things that we believe are ours because of the, the good and godly lifestyles that we may have lived. But in reality, following Jesus may be less, less about comfort. Be less about comfort. And to our materialistic culture, the world around us, well, that is a shocking and unattractive message. And that's why Luke shows us this conversation, to remind us of what the time is. We're saved by the cross. We have our hope of heaven ahead. But this, the here and now, well, this isn't our true home. And so Jesus calls us to not get too comfy, but rather to count the cost and to follow him. And there's so many different um, stories and individuals I can think of that come to mind that really capture uh, those who have who've counted the cost in this way. Um, Sarah used to work for a mission agency um, back when she lived near Oxford, and there were some great examples of, of couples who, who would retire, um, had worked hard for a lot of their lives, but rather than necessarily taking it more slowly and, and, and using um, their savings for, for relaxation, well, they would go off to, to really rough parts of Africa to serve on the mission field there. Or I think of another friend I have um, back in Swindon who I interviewed about church planting and taking his family and his four young girls to a very rough part uh, of an estate there, again, to to look to start a new church. Great examples. I'm sure there are people in your lives that you can think of, people who've counted the cost, the cost of perhaps comfort for the glory of God. The cost of comfort is one that we will experience if we are followers of Jesus. So what will this look like for us, for you here this evening? Again, just to make it really practical for us, I'd, I'd love to, uh, for us to go back into our groups and just to think about that question for a moment. What would it look like for you to count the cost of comfort? Maybe this is already something that we're doing and we can share that uh, in a bit more detail together whether it's uh, amongst our colleagues, our families, or or our finances, or any other areas of life, what might it look like for us to count the costs of comfort? A few minutes, and then we'll come back again together. Short. We won't won't feed back together on this one for the sake of time, but hopefully you've had some helpful discussions as to what it might look like to count the cost in regards to comfort. 
And it's Jesus above comfort. And then we also see in these, these final few verses that it's Jesus above even family. Don't know what's happened to that text. That's gone a bit funny, hasn't it? But it's Jesus above family as well. Now, these, are, these sound like some controversial verses, and I'm afraid we don't have time to go to them, uh, into them in more detail. I tell you what, we're just going to go back to that one, so it's less distracting. But it's Jesus above family as well. Um, do chat to me afterwards if you have questions about these verses, because they are some strong words from Jesus. But at the heart of what he's getting at here is that, again, Jesus is that number one priority. I think in our culture, there is sometimes perhaps the danger that we make our families, which are a good gift from God, even that can be a bit of an idol. When a good thing becomes a bit of a God thing, something that we're prioritizing over Jesus and making him known to others. And that's what Jesus is really speaking about in these verses, making him known and not prioritizing family above him. And again, that will be costly. What will that look like for each of us in our situations as we put Jesus above even our parents, even above our children, and above ourselves? So as we reflect on what it means to journey with Jesus, to count the cost, Luke here is showing us that to be a Christian is to put comfort second to Jesus. Luke here is showing us that to be a Christian is to put well, even our family and ourselves second to Jesus. That's a high cost, isn't it? Jesus says, I have to come first. And that is a serious cost. But remember that Jesus doesn't ask anything of us that that he hasn't already undergone himself. We'll we'll, we'll close on looking just at this verse very briefly in Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's heading for Jerusalem on the road marked with rejection to the cross, to certain death. But that's not the destination. Because remember, he's going by the cross to glory. He calls us to carry our crosses, but also to think beyond that to glory. We can remember, can't we, how Jesus left the comfort of his heavenly home to come and to be with us. There was no room in that inn. There was no home there. There was no welcome in this Samaritan village. There was no home there. No, he leaves his home so that we might one day have our heavenly homes with him. If you're worried about losing our comfort in this world, look ahead to the comforts that we'll have in that heavenly home. If you're worried about the clash that following Jesus might have on our friends and on our families, Well, Jesus offers us a family here, the family of the church, and that will last into eternity. So again, what time is it? With the cross behind us, our salvation, glory ahead, our resurrection, our heavenly homes, we can count the cost and follow in the footsteps of Jesus, our Savior.